Evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to this evening's public lecture on healthy African cities. I'm always delighted to have a public lecture in here on a grey, rainy evening because the artificial sunlight really helps to improve the mood, I find, for, a, for an evening event. But thank you so much for, for coming along to this evening's uh, public lecture, which is the first of two lectures on urban health that we'll be hosting uh, here at the LSC. Um, small commercial break. The second one is going to be on the 22nd, sorry, the 26th um, of April, which is going to look at interdisciplinary approaches to studying urban health. And that's going to be led by Professor Sharon Friel, who's chair of the uh, Global Research Network on Urban Health. So get the date in your diaries. So this evening's lecture is the first of two lectures on urban health. Um, the which, both of which come out of the Hong Kong Urban Age 2011 conference, uh, which was hosted by LSE Cities. And what I'm particularly delighted about tonight, and I'm just realised I haven't introduced myself, my name is Ernestina Coast, and I'm an academic in the social policy department here at the LSE. What I'm particularly delighted about tonight is it brings together three main organisers and contributors at the LSE, LSE Cities, LSE Health, and importantly, the LSE Africa Initiative. And it really brings on... Um, ongoing collaboration between LSE Health and LSE Cities. Um, all three of today's speakers uh, were either involved personally or their institutions were involved at the Urban Age 2011 um, conference that happened in Hong Kong. So without any further ado, I'm going to introduce the three um, speakers. I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll be speaking this evening. Um, they're sitting down at the front so that when the other person is talking, they don't have to do that horrible thing of trying to see behind their heads as to what the co-panelist is saying. So our first presenter this evening is Dr. Goran Boop, um, who is chief of the UN Habitat Global Observatory on um, Urban, sorry, the Global Urban Observatory, which is based in Nairobi. Our second presenter this evening is Professor uh, Vanessa Watson, um, who's based jointly out of architecture, the Department of Architecture and Planning, and also the Centre for African Cities at the University of Cape Town. And our third speaker this evening is Dr. Amanda Graft Aitkins, who is a, an associate professor at the University of Ghana, but at the moment is a visiting fellow um, in LSE Health, funded by the LSE's Africa initiative. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Gura. I'm going to be a firm but fair chair. You have 20 minutes. I have my little signs to hold up when you've got two minutes left. And thank you, Gura. Over to you. Thank you. Good, good afternoon or good evening or good morning, it will depend on where you are. Thank you, Ernesta, for the introduction. My name is Gorambu from Nairobi. I'm in charge of the monitoring of the Habitat Agenda and the Millennium Development Goals. I would like to thank LSC City for inviting us for this first public lecture. For me, it's an opportunity to be connected to university again, because I left, uh, I can say, the university environment 20 years ago. Uh, 
therefore, uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, when I was asked to make a presentation on LC, healthy African cities, my question was, uh, what do you mean by health? But we will not uh, debate it here because I prefer to use the easy way just to discuss uh, the traditional aspect of health. Uh, my presentation will be based first on presenting the urbanization trend that will help us to understand the picture of cities, mortality trends, how it can be related to urbanization, and also to present opportunities and challenges in cities and the global responses. The data will be based on demographic health surveys. Myself, I coordinate demographic health survey in West and Central Africa for more than 10 years, from 92 to 2003, before I joined UN Habitat. And also on the urban unity survey uh, implemented by UN Habitat. Those surveys are based on housing and basic services, health, nutrition, family planning, infant and child mortality. Having this information in the same database help us or give the possibility to look at linkages between housing and health. As we can see at the beginning of the 19th century, the world was rural. It's only two persons who was living in cities. Today, is more than 50%, and based on our projection, in, 1950, in 2050, we will be 70%. Therefore, it is now urgent and important to understand what happened in cities. Africa is not yet urbanized at 50%. It's only 40%, but it is projected at 2020, West Africa will be uh, urbanized at uh, 50% and for East Africa it will be 2040. I will go. If cities are well managed, based on the information we have, they can generate jobs, provide opportunity for investment, offer more facilities, health facilities, school facilities, and so on. And based on the estimation we have also, city contribute to more than 50% of the national GDP. That's why it's not wrong to say cities are engine of development. In the same time, we have observed a very positive aspect for Africa. Today, most people are healthier and live longer. Before 1950, the life expectancy was below 40. Now it's more than 50 years. I think also sometimes we may believe there is no progress. The data are showing progress. There are some countries we understand well. They have uh, affected by HIV AIDS and conflict about uh, six countries based on also data. But even in those countries, the under-five mortality has 
significantly decrease. And I think it's very important to note that now in Africa, particularly in cities, children are more likely to survive until age five. This is uh, data showing very clear. We just look at 90 and 2010. It is very clear it will continue to decrease. It's still very high, but there is a progress. Therefore, what I'm presenting is a progress. The progress is due to decrease in communicable disease, significant increase in child immunization, and also awareness for people living in cities. Therefore, cities present opportunity. Data show they are, when you are in city, sickness is less. Therefore, the mortality decrease, education is high, and there is more opportunity for employment. These data are from demographic health surveys showing very clear access to antenatal care. If we take only the case of Cameroon, it's more than 90%. And this is very important. Sure, uh, the ideal situation is to have 100% access to antenatal care. But if we look at when it was less than 50, we have to appreciate the progress. Living in cities, I'm comparing here rural and rural migrant. Rural migrant is in red, rural is in blue. Rural migrants are better off than people who are living in rural. That is just to show we are moving the migration to city. There is a reason, because city present opportunity. The same was observed also on missile vaccination, and it is consistent. Malnutrition. When you compare urban-rural, malnutrition is much lower if you take the case of, of Cameroon in urban than rural. That even for other sectors. If you look at the migrant compared to rural, you will find the same phenomena. The same was also observed in Daria. I will not go in detail. However, there is things very important. Cities are not uniform, and the average hides the reality. There is inequalities. That's why in UN Habitat we advocate not only to present the average of cities, but to disaggregate as a data. That's where you can see the difference. For example, if you take Africa in general, based on our estimation, six out of ten people live in some area. Means they do not have access to improved water, they do not have access to improved sanitation, poor housing condition, overcrowding. And we know all these factors are preconditioned for high morbidity. Diarrhea, acute respiratory infection. But furthermore, there is here what we call multiple shelter deprivation. That means you lack almost all basic services. If we take the case of Sudan, who is in red, 
41 person. And here, when I'm presenting Sudan, it is the Sudan before uh, they are separate. 41 person of household do not have improved water, improved sanitation, live in a non-durable housing, and they are overcrowded. That's why when you are looking, the under five mortality of Sudan is very high. But this is consistent in almost many African cities, like in Central African Republic. This is an example of Addis Ababa, where we can see in a geographical area how cities are diverse. Bole, for someone who knows very well Addis is the center, that's where you may have access to water, but there are many areas in Addis Ababa where water does not exist when you say water is improved water, or if water exists, it's not affordable. That means it's with a high cost. What we observe in Africa is unplanned growth leading to sprawl, growing inequalities between rich and poor, serious distortion in the form and functional of city, grave damage to the environment. I will not uh, present the data, but for those who are interested, I will invite you to go to our website, unhabitat.org. There is a publication, State of the World City Report on Prosperity, and this has been well developed there. What is the consequences on health? When there is multiple shelter deprivation in red, if you take the case of Cameroon, the prevalence of diarrhea is multiplied by more than two. This shows very clear that the condition of health or health condition is not just associated to access to health services, but the living condition. And this is consistent for all cities in Uganda, in Kenya, and Ethiopia. I'm just presenting these countries or cities, but we cover more than 60 cities. That is also available in our database. And that I will invite you to go to our website. There is the Urban Info database where you can find all this information. Therefore, I'm just presenting four countries. And when we say multiple deprivation are there, explain it, that means you, you lack almost all. I will the same for the acute respiratory infection. This graph is very appealing because always our belief is when we live in cities, based on the average, we are better off. But here we are showing very clear. That's why it's always good to disaggregate data that the salem condition in all these countries are similar to the rural condition. This is the prevalence of malnutrition. For example, if you take the case of Ethiopia, more than 40% of children living in slum are malnourished, a level similar to what you observe in rural. 
That's why the first picture I was showing, where I was showing cities are better off, that was an average. But if you disaggregate, you will see that there is disparities. And based on that, policies or health policies should not only focus only in rural. We have also to take into consideration these disparities in cities. The same was observed also in Daria. And even in the case of Zambia, Daria is much higher in slum than in rural area. There is another phenomenon very important, and this is because we look at some cities and we find they have access to basic services, but acute respiratory infection was high. We look at very clear, and there is something very unique for African cities. Because I look at also Asian and Latin American, I have not seen it there. Use of solid fuel for cooking is very high. As you can see here for Benin, 93% of households living in slum are using wood or charcoal for cooking. And we know what is the implication when you are in an overcrowded area where it is not well ventilated, how the smoking of this cooking have impact on the acute respiratory infection. And this is not related to economics, because even in non-slum, where there are better off, they are using charcoal and wood for cooking. Therefore, we have to link it to other aspects related to culture, related to many other considerations, but people are not, households are not using it just because of that. Therefore, there is an advocacy to do for that. Another phenomenon very important is poor management of solid waste. This is also very high, and I think for cities, perhaps if you take the case of Ethiopia, only 28% of households in small cities are disposing of the waste through public or private means. What they are doing with is they burn it or they bury it or they leave it in the street. And we know the consequences on health. All these are related to many aspects, including poor urban planning. We put it poor urban planning, why? Because when you want to do slum upgrading, the first problem you are facing is that aspect. There is no enough street for public services, no space. There is heavy traffic, limited public space, and the consequences is not only the traditional health. I was saying I'm going to present the traditional health, but there is many other aspects of health. Poor health quality, noise pollution, mental and physical health, all those are related to that aspect. Therefore, we believe there is a need for a fresh notion of health. African cities, 
with holistic, we take into consideration all those aspects, people-centered, inclusive, and sustainable. Based on that, UN Habitat and WSO, two organizations, one has the mandate for health, the other has the mandate for human settlement, are working together to develop a framework where we are not just looking health in terms of health services, but living condition and also the environmental setting. Based on that, UN Habitat has developed, and also I will invite you to go to our website, to take health as a part of the wheel of urban prosperity. We look at urban prosperity in five aspects. One is related to productivity, the other is related to infrastructure, the third to quality of life, equity and social inclusion, and the last, environmental sustainability. Uh, it is uh, defined here. I will not go in details because I don't want to use the time, but you will access. We believe that it should. Now we have developed what we call a compact where 200 cities will be member of this compact. And member of this compact also, there is many steps. It's not only measurement, but to link measurement to policy. One element of this, and as you can see, infrastructure development, quality of life, equity, environmental, all are associated with urban planning. Because sometimes we are looking at urban planning only in the design aspect. But even in terms of infrastructure, if the plan is not properly done, you will not even have place where for connection or sewerage system. And that's what we are facing on this uh, slim upgrading. Equity also can be created. Therefore, we are advocating, and that is where Habitat is working, for inclusive urban planning with adequate social integrated and connected and compacted cities. Land and housing shall be factored as associated factors, accessibility to basic services. More compact form, balance lower energy costs, greater heterogeneity and functionality, safeguard against new risk, higher provision of public goods. As you can see, this is uh, not the traditional aspect of determinant of health. This is commissioned by WSO. Uh, WSO, as you know, is an organization in charge of health, but now it has interest to link urban planning and public health. And they commissioned this study to University of Columbia to just do not look at city has building, street, and open space. It's a social space, health space, and so on. And there is an example also I provided here where there was an effort to link public health and urban planning in the slum upgrading of rural slum within Kenya, where now you are looking all the dimension in the planning stage. I just listed 
international initiative on that effort. That effort for Habitat is in 2006, where we have a publication called Where We Live Matters, related to health. UNFPA take it from there. It's related to population, but for the first time, they integrate the slum dimension to look at reproductive health. 2010, WSO commissioned a study on urban plan and health equity. Again, the two organizations work together to publish what we call hidden cities. That is where now we understand that the average we are publishing in city hide what is really happening in cities, the living condition. Habitat moved forward to bridging the urban divide. And now it is formalized. There is an MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, for the two organizations to work together, linking health and urban planning and all the aspects of human settlement. In 2012, UNICEF also decided to have a special report on children in the urban world. And now I can say, for the MDG post-2015, equity is central, because we recognize that it's central. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, everyone, and uh, thank you very much to LSE Cities for inviting me here. It, it really is a pleasure. Um, my talk is going to be drawing on a project at the African Center for Cities at the University of Cape Town, which tries to bring together urban planning and, and health, healthy cities. But before I talk about that project specifically, what I need to do is to explain how we are theoretically or conceptually positioning our work. So let me start off with that. Now, African cities have a long history of being the receivers rather than the generators of urban policy knowledge, theories, solutions, and so on. And during both colonial and post-colonial times, the American, British, European territories of the world, let's call them the global north as a shorthand, with only few exceptions, have produced and transplanted urban planning ideas and policies from the global north to African cities. Now, a key feature of the planned colonial towns, which uh, you find across Africa, was the social and spatial separation, and particularly separation between the, those involved in colonial administration and indigenous urban dwellers. Now, interestingly enough, the overriding concern of these early colonial plans uh, was, in fact, health. Um, the colonial urban quarters were usually surrounded by a green belt, or cordon sanitaire, as it was called, 
to protect the colonial administration from the disease and nuisance beyond. Now, of course, more than that and beyond that, planning in in African cities um, came over the subsequent decades to be bound up in many and complex ways with the modernizing and civilizing mission of, of colonial authorities. And increasingly, the control of urbanization processes and rapidly urbanizing populations. Now, ironically, I suppose, planning's early concern in African cities with health of the colonists has really been responsible for producing cities that are unhealthy in the extreme. So the the ongoing enforcement or attempt to enforce in Africa planning and building regulations that are appropriate for modernizing European cities has resulted in cities in Africa which are radically divided and inequitable. Really, poor people have to step outside of the law in order to survive in, in African cities. Many African cities, these plans and regulations apply to only the small part, the formal part of the city, while the large majority live in informal, unserviced, and and polluted environments. There's little clarity from urban planners in Africa how to plan and manage these burgeoning informal settlements and few resources to do so, even if there were good ideas how. Now, most worryingly, planning and management ideas about how to address these issues of of health have, over the years, continued to flow, as they always have done, primarily from regions of of the global north. And this is true for housing policies, transport policies, environmental policies, um, you name it. And, particularly, the in relation to a relatively newer body of thinking about how population health in cities can be improved. And if you look in the journals, this is a a relatively new and growing area of work, health in cities, um, particularly based uh, coming out of journals in in the United States. Now, there's absolutely no doubt that many of the ideas... Um, are are valuable, but there is a fundamental flaw which underlies uh, many of them. And that is that they are almost entirely based on assumptions regarding the social, economic, political, cultural, spatial contexts in which these ideas are to be implemented. And the assumptions underlying this body of literature from the global north, may well hold true in the regions in which it emerged, but you cannot simply generalize these ideas to the rest of the globe. The diversity is is immense. So one has to argue that cities in Africa and many other parts of the global south as well are different in a whole range of ways from those cities in 
economically advanced regions. In physical form, spatial and economic inequalities, poverty, cultural attitudes, functioning of institutions, social breakdown, crime and violence, environmental degradation, and so on. And of course, there's huge variation in these within the global north and huge variation within the global south. And there's probably a continuum of difference, um, but the differences are, are, are large. And I think this is really a central reason why, why so many policy ideas, urban policy ideas, attempted in African cities have had very little positive impact. And I, I think I'm, I can, it's very hard to find good practice successes uh, in, these ter- in these terms. And they very often have highly negative uh, and unforeseen outcomes. But yet African politicians, professionals, researchers, planners continue to look beyond the continent for the next best practice solution the promises to solve the ills of Africa. And this is also true now, I think, for the growing issue of uh, planning for healthy cities. Now, this concern with a thorough and deep contextual understanding of how we can address the issue of urban planning and health has really been an important reason behind First of all, the establishment of the African Center for Cities, University of Cape Town, in 2007. And since its establishment, it has used a a wide range of innovative methodologies to try and uncover the particularities of the the urban context. Not, not Not ignoring the global stock of policy ideas, and and certainly there are valuable ideas out there, but really importantly, trying to consider which of these ideas is really relevant given the particularities of, of the African urban context. Now, one of these methodologies which we have used at the ACC is, is called the, the City Labs. It is a a way, it's a process of co-producing knowledge, drawing on the insights of a range of different actors from different disciplinary backgrounds, but also from academia, the private sector, uh, civil society, and and so on. So, So these city labs bring people together to try and move them into a common space, if you like, of shared language and methods. And over the years, we've had six of these city labs. One of them is on on health and cities, and and new ones emerge all, all the time. Now, the Healthy Cities City Lab has drawn on researchers and professionals from a wide range of fields, city planners, medical doctors, sports scientists, anthropologists, sociologists, child rights researchers, and and so on. And this has produced absolutely fascinating uh, methodological uh, and content-related discussions. Methodologically, a key challenge has been to try and bring together the the scientific survey methods 
which the medical profession often tends to use, and the ethnographic approaches, um, which are maybe more common in, in other disciplines, and how to find common ground between those very different ways of trying to get to, to the truth, what, what is actually happening out there. The group, this particular group, has been meeting regularly over the past two years, um, and it is now in the process of, of writing up its, its findings. So let me turn to some of the, the, the substance of, of the project. Now, what we argue is that the, the most commonly used concepts and tools for understanding the relationship between physical urban environments and health and well-being are largely based, as I suggested before, on a body of empirical work that has been undertaken largely but not only in, in the US. The concepts that come through in this literature, such as concepts such as health and concepts such as urban, are also based on understandings of these terms in that particular context. And this body of research, voluminous at this stage, this body of research has produced research findings and guidelines on how to plan healthy urban environments. It has been distributed around the world, usually with no specification of the assumptions that it is based on. And its findings are usually presented as if they are universally applicable. There's no suggestion that these findings might apply to this particular region of the world, but caution anywhere else. Now, in many parts of the Global South and many parts of Africa, and uh, I'm very pleased Gora went first because I think that gave a great backdrop to some of this, Cities and urban economies simply don't conform to the assumptions which underlie much of this global north healthy cities literature. The, this literature, mainstream literature if you like, largely addresses key health factors of uh, non-communicable disease, diabetes, strokes, cancers, often linked to obesity, and tends to focus on how more walkable cities can promote exercise, which is indeed a contributor to health. But we have to recognize that in African cities, there are large health differentials due to a very wide range of, of factors. Low quality housing, unhealthy living, unhealthy working conditions, poor access to health services, and so on. And I think we can, we can argue that there is a, a multiple burden of disease consisting of communicable disease, non-communicable disease, and as well as a range of other factors such as traffic accidents, violence, and natural disaster, um, which all underlie and interlink, importantly, um, the well-being of, of urban populations. So we have to take that into, into account uh, in, in African cities. Now, next, the, the use in this mainstream literature of, of quantitative methods 
has tended to produce definitions of poor health as the measurable presence of disease. You need to be able to measure it. Okay? But probably far more relevant, and particularly in the context we are, are talking about, is the, is the rather older World Health Organization definition of health as a state of complete physical, psychological, and social well-being, and not only the absence of disease uh, and, and weakness. And this, in fact, aligns very closely with what we have been finding in, in our case studies, that traditional African conceptions of health have been described as focusing on mental, physical, spiritual, emotional stability, not only for oneself, but for one's family members and, and communities. So one has to look at that broader definition um, of health. Now again, in this mainstream healthy cities literature, definitions of what is a viable and healthy urban environment are very, very strongly influenced by older visions of older formal Europeans, European cities, and particularly the idea of, of new urbanist cities, um, are considered to be highly walkable and therefore highly uh, health-promoting. And I'm sure that is, is correct. But most African cities differ from this in quite significant ways. They are characterized by extensive informality, a lack of neat separation between urban uses, um, poor separation between pedestrians, bicycles, vehicles, cars, and so on, and services are, are often communal. And they're not easy or pleasant or safe to walk in. The chances of us shifting these kinds of cities um, to the new urbanist model, ideal as it might seem, is really a, a long way off. And finally, there's underlying, again, this mainstream literature, that there's a rational choice assumption in relation to health-related behaviors. In this mainstream literature, individuals are assumed to act rationally and voluntarily in a world of many options and, and clear choices. So when studying health-related behaviors, often inadequate attention is given to the, so the social and the cultural factors that limit that choice. People don't have these, these open and wide and, and individual choices. There are important social and cultural factors that limit choice, and in many contexts, decisions are made by, by groups uh, rather than simply by, by individuals. Now, the work of the African Center for Cities um, City Lab has been trying to challenge these assumptions. And we have been using a, a very interesting um, ethnographic method called body mapping. And we've used this in combination with, with survey and quantitative results, but those are, those are very generalized. And we, we really needed to get down to the nitty-gritty of how people in this case, Kailicha, a particularly poor, informal uh, part of Cape Town, how they were feeling about health and, and environment. 
And without being able to go into too much detail, this method involved extensive workshops with groups of volunteers from Kailiche who were asked to trace the outline of their bodies and then annotate the tracings as a basis for discussing their health and, and well-being problems. And, and the most amazing graphics tend to come out of this work where you know, people really got to grips with the idea of, of drawing um, where they saw the, the problems as lying. Now, that, that, of course, deals with the body, and we have to look further. So we also ask people to, to draw representations of the environment in which they lived and how this impacted on their, their health and well-being. And we conducted in-depth, qualitative, ethnographic interviews with people. We also gave them disposable cameras and asked them to take photographs of the aspects of their environment that they felt influenced their, their health and quality of life. And the work that came out of this was, uh, has really been absolutely fascinating. It shows that the, the way in which people interact with their physical urban environment, certainly in Kailiche, is strongly mediated by social factors. And people's concepts of health and well-being go beyond the biomedical into the realms of the spiritual and the emotional. The use of, of space in Kailiche is very strongly influenced by fears of violence. Stress and depression were major issues impacting on people's mental health and well-being. And these are mainly related to people's fear of crime, a sense of lawlessness, and a general sense of hopelessness about the state of deprivation that people found themselves in. So I think findings from case studies such as these indicate that there, there, there certainly is a relationship between space and health. And urban planners certainly should be concerned about how their work can promote health and well-being. But how they actually do this in rapidly urbanizing and poor cities has not yet been addressed hardly at all in the mainstream healthy cities literature. This healthy cities literature needs to be broadened to encompass the triple burden of disease in African cities. We need to think how urban planning can encompass all of these. And new research really needs to start with a deep understanding of the context rather than importing uh, assumptions and ideas unquestioningly from other parts of the world. So given the persistence of, and I'm finishing now, given the persistence of colonial patterns of spatial segregation and marginalization of the poor, we really need to look at a whole cities approach. How are cities as a whole uh, functioning and can function in the African context? How can we secure well-located land for the poor, especially in the face of rampant private property uh, development? How can we afford sustainable public transport? How can we introduce that rather than the current focus on simply more freeways? How can informal settlements be made healthy without necessarily full formalization, which inevitably prices people out of these areas? 
And how can informal jobs be created and facilitated without being swept out of the way when they don't fit politicians' notions of neat and tidy cities? Thank you. I was asked to put up at the end two issues for discussion, so let me quickly put those on the screen, Um, but I'm sure we can come back to those at discussion time. And what I've asked you to think about is uh, ways in which it is possibly we can start to influence um, international development agencies to recognize the importance of a new, a new take on cities and health from the specificities of the African context. Um, and, and could we find funding to try out the ACC body mapping approach, um, which has been so successful? So thank you very much. Good evening, everyone, and I'd like to thank um, LSE Health and LSE African Initiative for inviting me to present at this lecture. Um, I thought I'd focus on, for my lecture, focus on the people who live in and use African cities and use Accra, where I live and work, um, as a case study. Um, I'll make a a case first for focusing on city inhabitants, give a brief history, um, social and health history of Accra, um, and try to operationalize the concept of competence um, at three levels to talk about how people in Accra um, use Accra on a daily basis um, and propose some sort of issues in terms of challenges and opportunities So the WHO defines a healthy city in terms of um, an entity in in process and not an outcome. So there's a sense of an evolving sort of process of of building an environment and using an environment. Um, They talk about the fact that a healthy city um, involves policymakers, planners, providing basic needs for people who live in cities, but at the same time focusing on what people do, how people participate um, in and control their lives in in the city environment. So there's a sense of a kind of a multi-level approach to understanding health cities, Um, from the top down looking at what city planners, policymakers are doing, and from the bottom up what city inhabitants are doing about their social circumstances and their social environments. There's been a limited focus on how people live in and use African cities, particularly in the absence of concrete urban policy. So I just want to focus on on that, um, that sort of limited sort of area. Because, of course, as we wait for urban policies to be developed and implemented, um, people must continue to live in and use the cities in a variety of ways to serve their own purposes. So I'm drawing on the construct of competence, largely from the psychological literature. Um, Watterson Truth um, defined competence as the ways in which individuals use their environment and personal resources to achieve good developmental outcomes. I mean, you're talking about, it, about this in relation to developmental psychology, but it's been used in three other areas um, of research looking, for instance, at environmental competence and the ways in which people are able to deal with their immediate surroundings in an effective and stimulating manner, 
um, social competence, the ways in which people deal with social heterogeneity and complexity, um, and in terms of self-competence, how one uses one's knowledge, stock of knowledge, and, and how one uses one's complex identities um, to deal with diverse and adverse experiences. So a brief social history of Accra. So Accra is Ghana's capital city. It started out in the 16th century, before actually the colonial era, as a small Ga community, a collection of Ga communities. Um, of course, you know, as you know, slavery proceeded, other foreign groups joined in. The British were there, the, the Danes were there, Dutch were there. In the 18th century, um, Accra even um, was home to freed slaves from Brazil. So even to this day, there are areas in Accra um, where people have um, Brazilian names like Da Rocha and Da Costa and so on. Um, in 1877, Accra became the capital. The capital was moved from Cape Coast, which was a largely fancy town, to this Gar um, town. And migration increased, particularly from surrounding African sort of um, countries, um, as well as from other parts of the gold, then Gold Coast and Northern Territories. Ghana was the first black African country to gain independence in 1957. And when it gained independence, Kwame Nkrumah, who actually incidentally studied at the LSE, didn't quite get his doctorate here, but you know, I think he was um, honored later on, um, basically kind of cut his intellectual teeth um, in the US and the UK. And when he became president, he basically invited people from all over, you know, from African-Americans, Caribbeans, um, you know, um, allies in, in the Soviet Union and so on to come to Ghana. So Accra became a very vibrant sort of um, increasingly globalized sort of city. Like other African countries, Ghana went through the series of coup d'etats. Um, between 1972 and 1982, there were six governments all came into power through coup d'etats. Um, we had the structural adjustment pro, um, program years in the 80s, 90s, um, where government was, was basically had to adopt policies, um, you know, which, which had huge impacts on how institutions, public institutions were run and funded, with a trickle-down effect on the social circumstances of people. There was a brain drain then, um, high rural urban migration, um, and so on. Now, Africa, um, sorry, Accra is seen as a globalized city. I mean, from the 1990s to present, there's been a rising presence of multinational um, companies and organizations. In 2000, um, there were at least 650 organizations from 80 countries in Accra. Shows you how diversified it become. Um, hotels were built. The rise of gated communities started then. Um, presently, it's sort of moved into high-tech um, luxury apartments, you know, built by sort of foreign companies and so on. The population of Accra rose, you know, has risen significantly. I mean, from almost 20,000 in 1911 to 100 years later, the last um, census um, in 2010 um, recorded 4 million, a population of 4 million in Accra. The interesting thing about how you know, people use Accra, for instance, is the ways in which 
neighborhoods have changed over time. There are some neighborhoods that have been around since the 16th century. Started out as market, market towns like Latish, Yabusokai, Mamprobi, and so on, have basically changed in terms of physical structure and the people who live in them. There were neighborhoods that were developed in the 1940s and 50s, um, largely to house a new emerging middle class. Um, of course, during that time also, prior to that time, um, neighborhoods that were developed purely for the colonial um, leaders, essentially. Um, and then in the 1990s, as Ghana changed in terms of it being a globalized city, um, we had sort of nouveau riche areas um, developed by inhabitants themselves or, um, or developed by um, city planners and, 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 and foreign companies. But essentially, across time, there's been a cross-cutting theme of poor planning, I mean, largely due to the fact that planners didn't anticipate a rapid rise in population, for instance. So diminishing quality of, of the urban space, of the built environment, and increasing social inequality. So in Accra, you can have at least four kinds of um, areas, you know, from areas that still look indigenous, um, as they did, you know, hundreds of years ago, on the outskirts of Accra. You have the rich areas, like East Legons and so on, you know, um, where people lived behind walls and have, you know, lots of green spaces within their living areas. Um, you've got your ubiquitous sort of... Um, urban sprawling sort of areas um, with, with a very limited space, um, with poor sanitation and so on. And then you have interesting kind of in-between spaces um, where you might have a developing um, rich area, but with pockets of unbuilt spaces, which people colonize with kiosks and things like that, where they live and work. So health history of Accra Often the debates and discussions around Africa's public health issues focus on the large burden of infectious diseases. And of course, as previous presenters have, have, have noted, it's a very simplistic way of looking at public health in Africa. But an interesting thing, actually, is that this sort of um, you know, mixed, multiple burden of disease has been around for quite a while. It's not a new phenomenon. Um, Accra, for instance, has had um, what Frank and colleagues called, you know, a protracted polarized model of the epidemiological transition, where infectious and chronic diseases have always coexisted, but have affected different social groups in different ways. So, for instance, um, wealthy communities have always been at risk of cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, um, cancers, and so on. And poor communities have always had the double burden of infectious and chronic diseases. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, for instance, there was a major WHO-funded project um, on one of the oldest sort of Gaia communities, Jamestown, Mount Proby, um, where essentially the, the researchers recorded that coexistence of, of, of a double burden of disease affecting wealthy and poor inhabitants in different ways. And across time, health systems have largely focused on infectious disease um, and ignored the emerging problem or the presence of chronic diseases. The social determinants of health have also been underrated to some degree. There's been a kind of a parallel system where urban planners 
aimed to create a city that was healthy, for instance, you know, making sure that estates were built, roads were built, um, water was provided, safe water was provided, and so on. But city planners and health systems communities haven't quite sort of um, worked together in synchrony. I mean, at the same time, you know, there have been major structural and social and psychological changes, as I said earlier. Um, during the Structural Adjustment Program, yes, for instance, um, very prohibitive health policies were implemented that affected poor communities disproportionately. As people moved in from um, rural areas to urban Accra, um, it created high-risk slum environments, you know, built on areas that were meant for schools and, 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 and other sort of public um, services. Um, of course, we've had, um, you know, food market globalization is a major, major issue in many African countries where eating practices have changed. Well, largely, of course, because people have always enjoyed eating different things, but suddenly there's a, there's a wide variety of foods available to um, people across the socioeconomic divide. So practices have changed, poor sanitation, of course, a structural problem, but also a social problem. Sedentary lifestyles, poor dietary practices, and so on um, have become the, the, the focus, um, you know, the context within which Accra has to be understood. So essentially, to sum up um, that, that part of the, the, the presentation, health and well-being of city inhabitants has been at the core of Accra's development, at least by city planners. There have been challenges um, to, to this goal, um, and they run the gamut from the structural um, to the individual. As city planners have struggled to contain population increase and the implications that come from that, social processes have, you know, continued. Um, you know, people have chosen to move to Accra from rural areas. Um, people choose to work in Accra and maybe live elsewhere. Um, people choose to move from one area to another, depending on where they are, um, age level, educational level, um, income level, and so on. And I want to look at this sort of interreaction, interrelationship between the structural and the social through the construct of competence. So I just want to focus, for instance, I mean, there's so many ways in which we can look at how people navigate the, envi in the, in the environment in Ghana. I mean, we can talk about, you know, um, how people deal with, I don't know, noise pollution, air pollution, um, you know, getting from one place to another and so on. But I want to focus on traffic because there's one major thing that everybody in Accra talks about is the one major unifying stress factor for Accra in inhabitants. So what do the middle class do? I mean, most middle class um, people tend to live far away from work because as Accra has sort of expanded, um, the distance between one's workplace and one's home has, has lengthened. Um, and you find people living in places like Sakumono, East Ligon, who work in Ridge or the city um, center, tend to wake up really early. Some people wake up at 4 a.m. in order to beat the traffic. Um, they wake up their children, um, you know, to have their bath, to have breakfast. Sometimes they have breakfast in the car and they get to work. And this is a very sort of a, a common theme when you talk to people who have to drive to work. And this is really largely to avoid traffic. If you don't leave by a certain time, you have, I don't know, one hour in traffic or two hours in traffic. 
People tend, because of the distances between home and work, not to eat at home any longer, to eat at work. Um, and Accra um, has a significant proportion of out-of-home um, eating um, based on calculations of expenditure um, across, across Ghana. Men, in particular, hang out at bars after work, you know, so to beat the going-home sort of traffic, hang out at the bar, have, have a drink or two or three, um, and, of course, all of these things um, create, increase the risk um, for the major chronic diseases, diabetes, hypertension, and so on, but also there are psychosocial stresses um, associated with this. If you look at the working, low-income, poor um, communities, a majority of them work and live on the streets. So it's not a matter of sort of moving from A to B. It's about how you manage the streets as your home and as your workplace. Um, and there are clear implications, physical health implications, road traffic accidents, and so on and so forth, as well as risks of social exploitation, violence, and so on that comes with living and working on the streets. Social competence, I mean, in the literature, particularly when you look at the urban sociology literature, is this idea that, you know, the, the competent adults must be able to work with, manage complex social relationships. In Accra, um, the average, you know, neighborhood, average workplace will be a mixed space. Um, multi-ethnic groups, multicultural groups, rich-poor groups, intergenerational groups. The interesting thing is that people find the unfamiliar risky. So, for instance, you'll find that in rich neighborhoods, for instance, where poor people have colonized spaces, unbuilt spaces, there's a great fear, great perception of social inequality, even on the streets, when you stop at the traffic lights and the poor boy from Nima or Abu Blushi rushes to clean your windscreen, there's that interaction based on fear. But there's also, most importantly, risk in the familiar. We don't talk about that often. Um, communities that have been bound by ethnic relations or family relations, intergenerational communities like Jamestown, Ashatan, but these were old guard towns. Um, there's great risk in the way that they manage their social relationships. as mistrust in those communities, leads, leading to great psychosocial stress um, and disruptive experiences, particularly when one is sick, has a long-term condition that requires positive social support. But beyond that, there are positive social spaces that move beyond where people live, um, you know, neighborhood level. Um, workplaces, for instance, have begun to set up you know, sort of health activities, you know. Um, churches and mosques are great places for people to meet, not just to worship, but also to go for health walks um, or to have aerobic sessions and so on. And this happens in rich areas and poor areas. Um, there are some neighborhoods where people have lived for years, you know, um, you know, 20 years, 30 years, where there is still that sense, that communal spirit, where people gather and, 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 you know, have parties together and so on and so forth. Advocacy organizations sprang up during the structural adjustment um, program years. Um, and these cohere largely around sort of health, NCDs. Of course, there are a few that work, for instance, on, on the, the livelihoods of poor communities and so on. But these organizations offer... 
um, opportunities for people to voice their, their problems and, and, and sort of reach policymakers and so on. I've highlighted the art community because it's a very interesting community in the sense that while the other sort of social groups are concerned with how they live healthier lives for themselves and for their, for their own kind of families and, and meaningful social groups, the art community often sort of operates to, to recreate meanings around what Accra is and what Accra should do. So Ghana turned 65 yesterday. And the art community, in collaboration with the Historical Society of Ghana, um, has basically sort of set up a week-long celebration of Accra. And this involves, you know, theater, music, um, sort of art events. But the Historical Society of Ghana is also actually busing people across Accra to essentially take people through a kind of historical tour of where Accra started and where it is now. Self-competence, very quickly. Um, Gosh, I have no time. But anyway, um, the important thing is sort of to, to understand how people are using the information they have at their disposal and how they use that to, you know, developmental, ideal developmental purposes. Most people are aware, most are crying, at least through the demographic and health surveys, um, mixed method research gathered across um, from social science institutions, we know that people are aware of the prevalent health conditions in their, in, in, in their city and in their communities. There is some understanding of some risk factors. Most people know that poor sanitation isn't good for health. Unsafe sex leads to HIV and, and sexually transmitted diseases. Fatty and sugary foods are linked to diabetes. Alcohol consumption is bad. Um, and poverty can actually create stress um, that can then lead to illness. But most people are unaware of their own at-risk status. So there's usually a kind of deflection that other people are more likely to be hypertensive and so on. And there's a clear um, disconnect between knowing what is good for oneself and doing the right thing. So just to sum up and end, um, from the available evidence, um, competence is an ideal. Um, most people in Accra want to be in Accra, at least from the research evidence, have moved to Accra for particular purposes, want to use Accra in a way that helps them and their families and their health and well-being. But, you know, competence is a double-edged sword. Um, it's successful um, when one has access to resources from structural, social, to the psychological level. It's undermined when it's a lack of resources. It's double-edged particularly when goals are short-term and self-centered. So the rich person who... Um, for 10 pounds, hires the policeman to basically just drive them through traffic at, at rush hour. I mean, it's, it's not likely to, to help anybody else but themselves, a short-term apolitical kind of strategy. But, but what we see, and as previous presenters have, have said, poor communities are particularly disadvantaged. Um, and so the important thing is to understand how um, we draw you know, the, the, the voices and the activities and the practices of people into city planning and policies um, that lead to healthy African cities. Thank you very much.
thank you to all three of our presenters for taking us rapidly and importantly between the macro and the micro. We'd like to open the floor up now for questions. We have roaming mics. We'd be very grateful if you can keep your questions short and say who you are and what your institutional affiliation is. Thank you. We'll take a couple and then open up to the panel and then take a couple more. Um, Sylvia, thank you. Hello, thank you very much. I'm Sylvia Champ from the um, Department of Geography and Environment and the Gender Institute here at LSE. Um, I enjoyed all presentations very much indeed, um, but I think most of my questions actually are going to be directed uh, to Gora. And the first question is, why has it been so long for UN Habitat to come round to the recognition that health and cities interrelate in all sorts of very important ways. I recall, I mean, I've been in the field quite a while, but I recall a wonderful book that was published in 1990 by David Satterthwaite, Jorge Hardadoy, and Sandy Cairncross. It was called The Poor Die Young, and it was all about health and housing and urban services and the very disadvantaged, uh, uh, the very great disadvantage faced by people in slums. So I suppose one of the questions is, where does, how does Habitat get its buttons pushed? Who's driving the agenda? Does it listen to academia, or does it actually wait until the World Bank starts getting interested in health? And I just wonder, I was actually involved in pre preparing the state of women in cities for UN Habitat this year. This is the first ever report, major report on, on the state of women in cities. And I just wondered whether a lot of the impetus for that came from the fact that the World Bank uh, produced its World Development Report in 2012 on uh, gender equality uh, and development. Um, I won't take long. Uh, the second issue I suppose I want to raise is how much progress are we making with available data uh, which really disaggregates cities along the lines of slums and non-slums. The latest book... Sorry... I'm not uh, David Satterthwaite's agent, um, but I am actually reading this at the moment. Um, it's a wonderful book called Urban Poverty um, in the Global South. Um, and one of the things that uh, uh, Mitlin and Satterthwaite talk about is the uh, appalling paucity of data uh, on slums and non-slum areas. And this was certainly something that we came across when we were doing our background work for State of Women in Cities. Um, and I suppose the third question I want to raise, and it may not be something you can answer tonight, is how do we promote healthy cities in a holistic way when there's so much in the way of privatisation going on, both in the healthcare sector uh, and uh, in terms of urban services? Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Sylvia. Um, Julian, next, please. And then the gentleman with the glasses. Julian Legrand <coughs> from the LSE. Um, uh, just a, a, a puzzle, really. Um, uh, all three speakers seem reasonably convinced that um, African cities are extremely unhealthy places in which to live. Um, and yet the first, uh, the first uh, diagram we saw showed a fairly dramatic fall in mortality from 2000-2010 during a period which was a period of very high, heavy um, urbanization. Um, and doesn't that raise a bit of a, a query? And it, it, the fall was at least partly due to um, areas like um, a fall in the uh, deaths due to communicable diseases, which are precisely the areas you would think that actually cities would be particularly bad uh, at promoting. And if you actually, if you think too back at 19th century experience in Europe or, or late 20th century experience in China, we see actually dramatic improvements in 
uh, mortality coupled with heavy urbanization. So maybe actually urbanization cities are good for you. And when you think of a number of reasons why they might be, um, better access to medical facilities or more importantly, access to jobs and higher incomes. Thank you, Julian. And sorry, can the mic go to the gentleman with the glasses there? Oh, two gentlemen with glasses. You'll go next. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm Giovanni De Grandis from uh, UCL, and I would like to ask to all the speakers uh, a question about uh, uh, the challenges that come from the multidisciplinary approach which is necessary to tackle uh, this uh, cluster of problems uh, related to urban health and city health. Because, of course, we have uh, different people like urban planners, uh, uh, medical doctors, uh, public health people, uh, development economists, and all come uh, bringing uh, different perspectives, different uh, uh, professional values, different uh, uh, agendas and, and priorities and ways of uh, seeing the, uh, the main task in, in different uh, ways. So uh, I want to ask you, uh, what is your experience of this uh, managing and overcoming these possible conflicts of, of values, of priorities between uh, uh, different uh, people from, uh, from different disciplines. Thank you. I'm going to ask Gora to reply succinctly to the set of questions about institutions that were raised and then open up to the rest of the panel for the other two, the other two points, please. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. I think uh, that's a very good question when asked uh, why it takes so long uh, UN Habitat uh, to look at health had the important dimension. I uh, myself uh, I joined Habitat in 2004 uh, from demographic health surveys. Uh, when I joined Habitat, as you know, uh, Habitat uh, Health is the second chapter of Habitat because the first chapter of Habitat is related to shelter. And the second chapter is related to social development on health. That's mean, and when I say Habitat Agenda, it was in 96. That's mean in 96, Mumbai State considered that health was important. That's why it was part of the charter. But now you need to have data, evidence-based. And I think using demographic health survey as health habitat to uh, show, and this is started in 2006 based on our publication, that uh, this intra-city differential was very important. But uh, I can say, therefore, in terms of mandate politic, it was important, but in terms of evidence base, it takes time to get the data. But it is very important. But I just want to uh, underline something very important. Habitat did not wait the word bank. And I can say, it, and it is very important, Habitat is the first organization in 2006 who produced worldwide, globally, intra-city differential comparing slum and non-slum. And today, if you look at the world development indicator of the World Bank, the slum published are from Habitat. If you look at also the human development indicator developed by UNDP, the data are also from Habitat. And myself, I'm the one who's providing those information to them. I agree what you say. I know very well because I discussed it several times with David uh, Saturday. 
with using sometime what I call a local approach. But as a global organization, and that is where it is, we have to use data, information, that can help us to do what we call international comparison. And uh, that is uh, sometimes there's a difference when you are doing a case study and when you are building a global database. A global database, you would like to make sure you are using the same definition, the same methodology, in order when the public are looking your database, for example, when you have urban info, you would like to make sure when you are comparing Ghana and Kenya based on what is here, the definitions are common. And that is just here the limitation of global monitoring. But uh, they complement. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Cora. I'm going, I'm going to ask Vanessa and Amma to respond to the other two comments that were raised, the, the, the seeming paradox in evidence, but also the issues of interdisciplinarity. Mm. Can I, can I answer the interdisciplinarity one? Because it is, it is one that uh, we have grappled with extensively over the period of our, of our project. Um, and, I mean, the challenges have been, have been really exciting. And, and probably the key one, as I mentioned in the talk, are, are methodological. Um, very different ways of, of thinking how one comes to knowing. But... Uh, with, with the, those coming from the medical field tending to, to come with a survey-based approach, uh, quantitative approach, which is absolutely useful, and I'm not suggesting we don't need that. But then, of course, with the anthropologists, the sociologists with us coming from a, an ethnographic perspective. But really interesting, when we took those, those medical researchers amongst us out into the field and got them involved in body mapping, they, they were fascinated by that. They, they accepted the value of that immediately. So it's, um, I, think, I think overcoming these, the methodological differences has to be given time. You can't put people in a room and expect them to sort out common ground uh, overnight. You have to work together as, as a, a group over months and months and months having in-depth discussions um, to start to, to think how your different ways of knowing the world can, can gel. So, so interesting, but absolutely essential, I think. So just a comment on multidisciplinary um, research, but also the paradox. Um, I mean, in Ghana, for instance, you've got geographers, economists, health sciences, population sciences, sociologists, architects, all researching Accra, and they work in silos. But there have been a few sort of conferences, multidisciplinary conferences, you know, convened by policymakers that bring these different sort of academics together. And these are interesting, and I think this is where perhaps in Ghana the, the, the trend should, should sort of should stay, really. So one point is bringing people together in the same space to talk about their research, which allows for more collective definitions and development of ideas, constructs, uh, methodologies, and so on. The second challenge slash opportunity really lies in the policy sphere, really. I mean, policymakers generally also tend to work in silos. So I mentioned earlier about health policymakers working, you know, in, in, in isolation from city planners, um, in isolation from, you know, the, the, the finance sector and so on and so forth. Um, 
And usually when policymakers are bringing academics onto the table, they go for people they know. So depending on, you know, which government in power, which minister is, you know, currently running a, a particular sector and so on, particular academics will be, bring, be brought on board to talk about specific issues. So that kind of needs to be a connection within the policy community on, on the one hand and between the policy community and academic communities to push things forward. I mean, in terms of the paradox, um, you know, as Gora said in his presentation, actually health has improved over time, and I guess that's an objective fact. You know, it's the fact that's been gathered in surveys and so on and so forth. But there's also the subjective experience of living in a city. I mean, on the one hand, of course, people choose to live in cities because it has something they want, something that goes beyond what they might get in a rural area and so on. But it's also what people know. I mean, what you hear, you know, when I do a lot of research on um, chronic illness experiences, diabetes and hypertension, and when you talk to people who live with these conditions and their family members and, and friends, you know, who know them, people are always talking about, oh, and so-and-so has diabetes, and so-and-so has cancer. So the kind of the social perception is that there are diseases, more diseases now in our environment than there used to be before. Um, so I guess maybe it's about how academic researchers um, disseminate their information, I guess. Maybe try to bridge the gap between the objective and the subject to say, actually, okay, your aunt might have diabetes, your, you, you know, somebody's friend might have diabetes, but actually there are fewer people um, dying at this age than they used to 50 years ago and so on. So I think that's where the paradox lies, at least in the Ghanaian setting. Thank you. I've already identified we've got our final batch of three questions, um, the gentleman with the, the black biro, and then if the next mic, the gentleman with the beard, and then finally the blue biro. <laughs> Um, my name is Peter Kane, and my background is urban housing. Um, there's very striking divergence in the um, sort of health outcomes if you compare Africa and Southeast Asia, and there was a reference to China earlier. And that divergence is very um, adverse in respect of Africa. Just to illustrate that, if you look at um, life expectancy in, say, um, in 1960 in Nigeria, it was in the low 40s, and similarly in Indonesia, it was in the low 40s. By, um, sort of in the first decade of the century, it was still under 50 in Nigeria, and it was over 70 in Indonesia. Um, and I just wonder what lessons the speakers would draw. And by lessons, I mean policy um, implications for, their, uh, for priorities, not so much processes, but priorities. And why? Okay, thank you. So, policy priorities, and then the gentleman there, please. Uh, Roger Williamson, uh, Institute of Development Studies, Sussex. Um, I'm particularly interested in mental health issues, depression, uh, and particularly in the light of what Vanessa was saying about culturally appropriate uh, approaches, because um, it seems to me that if the richest countries in the world aren't adequately dealing with it through uh, hospital based and psychiatrist based, uh, treatment, uh, then what would be the culturally appropriate form uh, of addressing you know, what is already uh, something in epidemic proportions, probably underdiagnosed or uh, differently described uh, in poor countries? Uh, how, does one, you know, how does one make sense of the data and how does one go forward? Thank you. Thank you. And our final question? 
Hi, yeah. my name's Guy Battle from uh, Deloitte. <clears throat> so I was left um, wanting more, actually, very interested by, by the talks. But could I ask the panel, um, having sort of tried to analyse what makes a healthy city for Africa, could you actually tell me what it might look like? What are, what are the sort of key attributes um, that you think a designer, architect, urban planner should follow um, that is different from the, the global north uh, uh, sort of uh, diagnosis. Thank you. And in the interest of time, I'm going to ask you to restrict yourselves to your absolutely top number one attribute. Um, I'll start at the end, Vanessa, if you'd like to respond in the round. Okay. Um, the, the question of depression, which I, I think is an interesting one. I, I don't come from the medical field, but clearly the, the, the causes of depression in the context which, which we were studying were, were also were various. Um, many of them had to do with bigger economic and social factors which one can't control. So poverty, unemployment, and, and so on, are, as, as uh, we heard, it is incredibly, incredibly stressful. But also the, the very fact of, of not being able to move around one's area because of fear of, of crime and violence, um, of feeling subject to attack whenever one goes out of one's house, is, uh, is incredibly stressful. And again, uh, leads to depression. So I think, I think one has to unpack that whole issue of depression. Some of the problems may lie in, in physical environments and others may lie in, in, in very different kinds of areas. But you're absolutely right. Not, not a great deal of, of thinking about um, you know, what one can do. And many people simply falling through the cracks in those terms. Unrecognized, undiagnosed, untreated. Mm -hmm. yes. your, your number one uh, of a healthy city, a, um, a good sanitation system. Thank you for your succinctness. Uh, I think that the comparison related to Nigeria and Indonesia related to life expectancy was remain very low in Nigeria. I think when you look at even the economic condition of Nigeria compared to Indonesia, you will find the same thing. It's not necessarily related to policy or priorities. Uh, if, uh, I do not have time to present it, but if you look at the living condition as presented related to housing, we will see very clear that that explains a lot why there is less progress in term life expectancy in Nigeria. Myself, I coordinate or no, I assess the mortality in Nigeria in 2001. I went uh, for UNICEF and you will see very clear if you know very well Lagos with a living condition, non-durable housing, overcrowding, I'm just quoting some related to socio-economic development can explain this case. Thank you, Gora. And your number one suggestion um, in response to the question about what would be your, your top priority for what a healthy city would look like? I think my presentation explained uh, uh, very quickly the notion of uh, healthy cities going back to prosperity. And why going back to Prosperity, because we believe that uh, the prosperous cities take into consideration health, but in terms of quality of life. 
uh, we are not looking just health in terms of uh, what we call the traditional. I think just having a very good public space where people can work very easily is healthy. I'm just giving an example because this is part of what UN Habitat is also promoting. And Emma, I don't know if you wanted to respond on the mental health. Yeah, I'd like to. Um, I think the problem with mental health is, is, yes, it's cultural, but it's also about resources. I mean, so there have been debates around, you know, schizophrenia, sort of culturally appropriate, you know, term to use Mm -hmm. in Africa, for instance, or do Africans sort of define depression in the same way as it's defined in, in North America and so on. Um, you find that, I mean, the, the, the more in-depth ethnographic anthropological work suggests that there are com- components of mental health states that cut across cultures. So we can certainly sort of talk about um, mental health states that are, you know, cross, cross-cultural in a way. But, but the second issue really is about how, how, does, how does an African country or an African city provide mental health services? In Ghana, for instance, 13%... Um, of the population is said to have some kind of a mental health problem. 3% have severe mental health problems like psychosis, schizophrenia. 10% have common mental disorders like depression, anxiety disorders. The country has three psychiatric hospitals. I mean, three psychiatric hospitals serving a population of 24 million. Um, Few psychiatrists, I think less than 10 actively, more mental health psychiatric nurses, fewer community psychiatric nurses. But over the, over the last few years, there's been a move towards creating more community-centered mental health care, for instance. So there's a new mental health bill that is essentially sort of, you know, prioritizing community-based care. The, the, the challenge is who is going to provide that? Because with few psychiatrists with few community-based sort of psychiatric professionals and so on. It's very difficult to actually sort of move that from theory to practice. The very interesting things happening, for instance, churches have taken over as the key spaces providing community-based mental health care. So the Pentecostal churches often have prayer camps attached to them where people go for residential care. And some clinical psychologists are beginning to you know, explore the potential for working with churches to provide community-based care outside of the public health um, sort of system. So that's the way Ghana is going. Nigeria has had that sort of system for a while also. So there are a few sort of, I guess, best practices that derive from, um, you know, the local context, really. But there, there are huge challenges in mental health care, really, particularly when we move beyond common mental disorders to everyday psychosocial stresses, you know, that have longer-term impact on, on, on mental health. What would a healthy African city look like? I don't know. I think safe and secure housing would be the first thing for everybody, you know, and particularly poor communities. I think safe and healthy food would be the next thing, you know. We need to sort out what street vendors are selling and what goes into, you know, the local delicacies that everybody likes, whether they're rich or poor. Electricity and water, um, this again cuts across socioeconomic status. In Ghana at the moment, um, there's no Accra, actually Ghana, there's no electricity you know, for six hours a day. And you know, this is in 2013. Um, you know, and um, better managed traffic you know, and more competent drivers to reduce the morning, <laughs> to reduce the morning stresses you know, of getting to work. I mean, there's so much road rage when you live in Accra. So that's my vision for Accra. Unless you can hire your own personal policeman. Yeah, for 10 pounds. 
It remains for me, however, to thank you for your forbearance. I think it's a measure of how interesting this topic is and the contributions of our speaker that I'm sorry we have gone slightly over time. But thank you for your contributions as audiences. Thank you to LSE Health, LSE Cities, It's an Endless List, and the LSE Africa Initiative for helping us to organise the first of these two events. And finally, thank you so much to our three panellists for flying in from Cape Town, Nairobi, and Accra in order to do such a productive and interesting evening. Thank you. <laughs>